I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. You might recall last summer the amazing amount of controversy surrounding ongoing conversations at the USCCB's annual summer meeting about a little document concerning the Eucharist. The main controversy, or at least what the media would have you believe was the main controversy, was whether or not the bishops were writing a document claiming and making the argument that politicians or public-facing figures, especially those responsible for policy, like the president or congressmen and women, or maybe even Supreme Court justices, if their political views and their perspectives on legislation were not in line with church teaching, namely on matters as grave as, say, abortion, then they should be prevented from receiving the Eucharist. Now, this was a conversation happening at the highest levels of church hierarchy and conversations surrounding the governance of the church and even a little bit inside baseball. Full disclosure, I talked about it a bit on my SiriusXM show. But if you really actually spent time reading the document the bishops ended up writing or even listening to all of the Zoom calls that were recorded between the bishops about this little document, that was like one paragraph in the middle of a lot of other things that the bishops were saying about this big project, maybe we could call it a movement, not even just a program, but as they like to say, a revival concerning the way Catholics in the United States of America approach the Eucharist. Named the Eucharistic Revival an effort of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops taking place from basically now until the summer of 2024 across the country in parishes and dioceses within religious communities, within Catholic schools, within nursing homes, within religious orders, you name it. If it's a place where Catholics gather, where they worship, where they express belief in the source and summit of our faith, how can we revive a deeper love of the Eucharist? Now, part of that conversation was, can we love the Eucharist if we don't respect it? And can we respect the Eucharist if at the highest reaches and public-facing figures are not respecting what they claim to believe is true? And so that was definitely a part of the conversation. But I still get so frustrated when I realize that that's all that people remember about this a document that they then wrote quite beautifully about the Eucharistic Revival. Now, why am I giving you a bit of inside baseball background knowledge on a document which is leading to a bunch of movements, which is leading to a bunch of projects, which is, of course, leading to this giant event that will take place in Indianapolis in the summer of 2024? Well, because the Eucharistic Revival is soon to kick off the weekend of Corpus Christi, in fact, and we wanted to sit down with somebody who's been at the heart of the planning of it, but who also, on a much larger scale, has been focused on the efforts of reviving a love of the Eucharist, reviving a love of the liturgy, reviving a love of parish community and worship. And that man that I think can help us unpack that in a really beautiful way is my dear friend, Dr. Tim O'Malley. Now, Tim has joined us on Ave Explorers before. He's a beautiful speaker. He's an incredibly engaging professor. He's a great writer. He's somebody who's offered me some amazing advice many, many times in my life. What I love when I sit down and talk to Tim is that his passion for this jumps through the screen. This was a Zoom call that felt like we were having drinks like old times on Notre Dame's campus, but even more so his desire to help people understand the great gift the Eucharist is and the reason we put so much effort into reviving an understanding of it. The bishops 
great number of discussions about the document, which was leading to this project, which is leading to this ongoing revival effort. The one tiny part that everybody focused on was the part that was salacious and scandalous. But in reality, at the heart of it, a bunch of priests got together and said, we want people to love the mass more. How do we do that? And the Eucharistic revival is that effort. So we talk about that and so much more in this episode on the meaning of the parish community gathering together for mass and how the Eucharistic revival is focused on reviving these communities, reviving our love of something as profound and as beautiful as receiving the Lord in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Eucharist. This is part of our Ave Explorer series on the mass. We hope that you click on over to our website, AveMariaPress.com, where you can find all of the great things that we're creating just for you including a lot more podcasts, some wonderful articles, some video conversations. There's also, if you click onto our website, AveMariaPress.com, find the Ave Explorer section. There is a place where you can submit questions. In a few weeks, we're going to have an Instagram Live with Father Blake Britton, an Ave author, a priest of the Diocese of Orlando, a wonderful guy who will be spending some time with us answering questions about the Mass live on Instagram. We want your questions. We want you to engage in this conversation with us. So if you click on over to the website, you'll find that all there. But for now, we hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim O'Malley about the Eucharistic revival and the great gift that it is for our church today. Dr. Tim O'Malley, welcome back to Ave Explorers. Oh, it's always good to be here with you, Katie, and to talk with folks from Ave. Yeah, it's it's a great joy, especially since you work with Ave Maria Press in a variety of different ways, especially with writing. You've written two books. Tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, who you are why we would want to talk to you about the Mass. Yeah, so I professionally am the academic director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. I like to describe our work as there was a Catholic theologian philosopher, Romano Guardini, that dealt with this intersection of liturgy, technology, education, and that's what our interest is. How do we understand what it means to live a liturgical form of life? And you know, as far as why you should listen to me, well, that I have no idea on. But um, as (laughs) far as what I do, one of the reasons I keep writing these books for Ave Maria, so I'm very involved in the Eucharistic revival of the USCCB. So my first book with Ave on the Eucharist was Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? And the second is Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. And they're twin books designed to facilitate the Eucharistic revival. The first is an introduction to why the doctrine of real presence and transubstantiation really matter. The second Mm. is, well, how does a parish start to live out a Eucharistic culture, right? It's one thing to teach people these doctrines, which I'm in favor of doing, but it's Mm -hmm. another to start promoting and fostering this culture in parish life, which is desperately needed right now. A, A culture that is liturgical Eucharistic, you know, right after the pandemic, in the midst of so much really polarization in the church and society, what else can bring us together than the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. You said that you're the director of this office and immediately like my spidey sense starts tingling because I love offices and I love people who have like a specific job to revive something. But my first thought was, okay, the person listening to this, my mom who's listening to this or the religion teacher of second graders in Kansas why does there need to be an, an entire office committed to liturgical thought and, and the way that this Eucharistic revival work needs to happen? Like what happened at some point in our, our Catholic life, maybe in America specifically, that 
that warrants the need for that? Because it's good work that you're doing, but why did somebody sit down and say, we have to do this now? Well, it's a good question. So uh, there's actually a history behind it. So in 1970, this office was established actually by the U.S. bishops at the time to focus on sociology and liturgy. So this interrelationship between, you know, what was called at the time ritual studies. So Mm. which is really like, how do people learn to worship or act in a worshipful manner? And the office itself changed its focus a little bit over time. You know, all these new rights came out after the council, and there weren't yet offices designed at the diocesan level to help with this. So my center really helped with that. You know, I think we're really on our third or fourth foundation now. I've directed it for 12 years, and our focus now is really on a much bigger issue, which is, okay, so liturgy is essential to Catholic life. The Second Vatican Council established this to be the case. I mean, it was the case already. It didn't establish it. It retrieved it. And noted that really at her heart, the church is liturgical before she is anything else. She's Eucharistic before she's anything else. She's not a bureaucracy. She's first a communion of God and the human person, right? And that communion is established in the activity par excellence of worship. But of course, how do we do this in an age in which the church is fractured, in which the social order is fractured, in which disaffiliation, of course, is on the rise, Disaffiliation, I should say, for all sorts of reasons, anything from like, I'm just not interested, I don't believe, to I was wounded by the church. And so how do we understand a worshipful life today, especially when there's so many things that are pushing against it? When I think about, you know, my own form of life, busyness is perpetual. We reduce everything to instrumentality, right? So what does this do or... My undergraduates, 18 to 22-year-olds, are falling apart because they've created lives of acquisition and achievement rather than of gratitude and self-gift. And so the liturgy is a way of tapping into this to this deeper meaning, to what it means to be a, a person who flourishes in the life of the world, mm-hmm. meant and called to beatitude with God. So that's why I think our office is needed now. It's a little bit different than your average office of worship because we're not really attending to some of the things like, okay, so how do you set up an altar cloth, right? Or uh, those sorts of things. We think there's plenty of people who can do that, but we we, we find ourselves being a a place where liturgy and life meet together. Yeah. It sounds like you believe, and I would agree 100%, that the liturgy is this otherworldly thing that actually prepares us to live the healthiest of lives in the world. Would that be a right assessment? Yeah, we were founded by a guy called Father Aidan Kavanaugh once upon a time. And his famous statement is the liturgy is doing the world the way it was meant to be done. And Mm. I think that's our, that remains our credo as we go out into the world and work in all sorts of topics related to liturgy. Okay, so we could get very, um, and we have over drinks many times, get very high-minded about solving why this conversation isn't happening the way it should in different parts of the church or in the life of, of people who show up to mass on Sunday with a gaggle of children and a thousand things bouncing through their heads. And okay, I'm here to do my obligation. I'm here to worship, but like, I'm only going to be half paying attention or I, I, I'm resentful because of whatever scandal has popped up this particular week. And so the thought of going to mass right now is, is more just a, it's something I have to do because it's expected of me, but I don't want to be here or somebody's going to a mass on Sunday that 
Maybe the altar cloth isn't the thing that's messed up, but something else is perhaps a bit out of sorts or the music is really bad or the preaching is not particularly inspiring. I want to zoom back to, we we have the why. We've established the why. We had Dr. Susan Timoney on earlier this week. We had Father Patrick Mary Briscoe. And now we have you. I want to ask this question and give you room to just kind of dig into it. We walk into mass on Sunday morning, Saturday afternoon, whenever we go. What are we going to experience in very practical ways that is going to then form the way I step out into the world an hour and a half later? And I I guess the reason I'm asking it this way is a lot of people might have found this podcast because they're just curious. What is this mass thing that Catholics go on and on about? Or why do they have to do it a certain way? Or these liturgy wars that are taking place in in different pockets of the church, mostly on Twitter. Like why, why are they caring so much about the specific things when apparently they should all be unified because it's Jesus is Jesus. When I walk into mass on Sunday, what am I going to experience that is actually going to change me to make me the person that's supposed to step out into the world and live life to the full? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice question. And I'll try to be practical, although sometimes I fear that on this particular issue, the practical defeats the what we're actually doing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm all for practical best steps, whatever, but I also want to be wary of it because yeah. the church actually proposes what is in the mass, right? There's something called the general instruction for the Roman Missal. It guides how the liturgy is to be celebrated. It gives the various options. Ideally, your priest at least, and probably your liturgy music director should have read them. If they haven't, <laughs> practically, I recommend that you invite them to do so. But I think one of the things that we are experiencing, which I think is the union of both theory and practice, is one of the difficulties, again, inspired by this Romano Guardini person that I really, our center is founded by, was a claim he wrote to the German bishops in the 1960s, late 1960s. He wrote that we've done a lot of things with the liturgy. We've changed things around. We've moved an altar, perhaps. We have texts that are available. Um, The mass is now, quote unquote, accessible. But how are we actually going to invite people to act, move, live in this liturgical way? And so I always throw this question back on people. You know, if the mass isn't formative of your identity, it may be because the mass is being poorly done, right? It could be that the music is dreadful, that we're not following like any of the guidance of the church on music. It could be that it's culturally not integrated into our lives, right? So, you know, we're attending a primarily white parish, but in fact, we're African-American and our own spiritual lives are are sort of denied. All those things are possibilities and the general instruction allows that. But I always throw it back on people and say, actually, it's your responsibility to Mm. to let yourself be formed at mass, right? So what are you experiencing? Well, you're experiencing not only the Eucharistic presence of Jesus, you're experiencing the remembering of the story of divine love, right? That then takes flesh in that life. You're experiencing the sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of the world, And like monks, you have to learn to pray those things. You have to learn to pray the words. So what are you experiencing? If you're experiencing often like misery, I invite Mm -hmm. folks to say, okay, how do I shape and attune myself to celebrate it well? And here is where I can be actually rather practical. You know, do I understand 
the words of what is taking place. So I understand the various parts of the mass. Am I disposing myself beforehand to receive it? Mm-hmm. Do I live this life of the liturgical year, for example, outside of the mass? Do I celebrate the feast with my family so that the mass isn't sort of just a, a kind of part of my life, but it's more than that? Do I keep holy the Sabbath? Do I keep Sunday as a day of rest in some way and denying this sort of like technocratic, endless machine of movement that's part of our lives? If I can, I should say, you know, do I keep a Sabbath of some sort if I'm able to do so? So I think a lot of the question is why is the mass is formative when we let it be formative, but that requires preparation for that to take place. I really like that answer. And I like that as a professor, right? You're throwing it back on somebody to be like, yeah, I could step in and criticize or I could step in and, and come up with a, a laundry list of reasons why it's bad liturgy. But at the end of the day, I used to say to my students, if you think the mass is boring, the mass is not boring, you're boring. And, and that's maybe a, a cruel way to put it, but it always kind of woke up at least freshmen to, oh, well, maybe I'm letting my mind wander or maybe I'm, I'm focusing too much on these particular things that I could complain about, or I could, you know, maybe invest in some way to try to make them better. Or I could just recognize that there's humans that are are doing this, but yet this is still the work of God as the work of the people engaged together. I'm not saying that the right way, but you said practically, these are some things that maybe we could start to do. Could I ask, I mean, you spend a lot of time with young adults. You're a dad of two young kids. What do you do? Maybe in your life as Tim O'Malley, not the professor, not the dad, not the husband, although I'm not asking you to turn those things off by any ways, but what do you do to make sure that you are prepared to let that liturgy form and shape you in those moments for the rest of the moments that you're then going to live? Part of it, to be frank, is that I go to the, I regularly pray the liturgy the hours first. Mm. So I don't think that 45 minutes per day are are enough. And so I want to immerse myself in the Psalms, in the scriptures. I I mean, I often find when people are like, well, you know, I'm not getting anything out of the mass or I'm not praying, you know, I don't understand what's going on or it's not interesting to me. It's really a question of your life of prayer, right? It's it's Mm. a, a life of, are you regularly praying? And if you're not, then that's going to be part of the dilemma. You have to learn to pray. And so the Liturgy of the Hours functioned for me as a kind of school of prayer, How do you pray the same psalm every morning? How do you pray these things and meet it? How do you learn to take time with them? So a a lot of it is the Liturgy of the Hours for me, which actually disposes me when I'm able to attend Mass to to, to participate in it, which is every Sunday, but not every weekday. It disposes Mm -hmm. me to enter a sort of prayerful state there, right? I learned the dispositions of how to quiet the heart how to take a bit of silence in my prayer, how to take a word and meditate upon it, right? So the Psalms are to be meditated or chewed upon. So to me, like that's actually the best way I pray the mass. Like every dad and husband and busy person in whatever our age, I don't enter mass always entirely disposed, right? Like sometimes I'm dragging my children in and there's a fight or there's violence within 35 seconds after arriving. And I'll rely that day on the body of Christ, the people of God, to offer the sacrifice for me because I'm not mm-hmm. simply I'm not going to be attentive enough to fully offer the sacrifice myself. But I do think it's just a, a liturgical culture in my life, which mm. the hours have provided, and allow me to celebrate the and to, to participate in the Eucharist well. 
I, I'm always I want to make sure that we use inside baseball language that we then explain. So can you just quick 10,000 foot view? What is the liturgy of the hours for folks who might have heard of it, but have no idea what it is other than like you can buy a booklet from Word on Fire now? Like what is the liturgy of the hours? Well, the liturgy of the hours are just the daily prayer of the church. So Christ, uh, as we read, actually not Christ, but, you know, we should sanctify our whole lives should be an unceasing prayer, St. Paul says. And so the church has done this by marking out the Psalms in certain readings to be done at certain times of the day. And so in the morning you pray in a certain way. It's an ordered mode of prayer. Monks do it. Clergy do it. Deacons do it. And lay people are invited in fact, by the Second Vatican Council to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, it sanctifies time, which is, I think, part of why it matters is because if if all your time starts being more sanctified, then it changes a good deal of how you live. So so that's the Liturgy of the Hours in, in a nutshell. My husband and I try to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. We either try to do morning prayer or night prayer. That's usually all that we can really fit in. And recently, Rose, who's four and a half, came out of her bedroom one night, I think it was like 8.30, and she found us in the living room praying the liturgy of the hours, attempting to sing, not very well. And she wanted to do it. And the next thing we knew, this now has become part of, like just in the past few weeks, has become part of our bedtime routine is she wants to come out and she wants to pray night prayer with us. And so we ordered her her own little book. And she can't read, she's four and a half. Like she can read simple Bob books, but just the physical act of holding the book and sitting there on Tommy's lap and participating with us not only has it made her fall asleep faster, like it, it helps with going to bed practically, but but it, there's something very sacramental about tactile touch and it's a, a repetitive phrase, but, but about the fact that she's engaging in this that I have not necessarily seen a, a complete like, okay, we're doing this at home. Now you need to sit more still at mass. But I can I can recognize that this is something we're practicing. And, and ultimately this is all just practicing how we can live better lives. I know you've got two young children. How do you and your wife, during the time of COVID, we interviewed you and y'all talked about doing a little liturgy of the word in your home when mass was closed. What do y'all maybe do as a family? If you can give us some insight into helping your kids, helping helping each other engage in that liturgical living, like you mentioned. Yeah, so I think part of it is for, for most parents, simply bringing them to mass and making it a priority actually matter. Um, we mark mm -hmm. these days through doing certain things within the home. So cooking certain meals, you know, celebrating events, celebrating the feast of their baptism. Uh, so the, the, the anniversaries of their baptism, we have their baptismal ca candle, which we light on their baptismal anniversary. Um, we certainly do evening prayer each night or sort of a night prayer, a modified version of night prayer that we do with singing and otherwise. Uh, and so we've done that since the children were young. They've learned some of the basic antiphons of the church. So, you know, our, our children can chant the basic and night prayer. There's a different song to Mary, hymn to Mary. And our, our children can chant those, by the way, in Latin, um, <laughs> which they've learned simply because we just do it each evening during the, these seasons. So, you know, it, it keeps time and space. This is really what I mean in this next book by liturgical culture. Mm -hmm. I think if you want to renew the mass, you have to renew the culture. And culture takes place in families. It takes place in parishes. It takes place outside the parish, right? So I think really what's most detrimental to the Catholic life today, ironically, is not the quality of the mass, which does need improvement, but a privatization of our liturgical life, of our whole lives mm -hmm. from the church. And so you know, to me, this is what leads to 
Catholics who don't, um, you know, Catholics who refuse to acknowledge the public dimensions of what it means to be Eucharistic, even the political dimensions of it. And then Catholics who also, you know, end up basically distanced from the church because they don't understand how it relates to their life. So this is what I mean by a Eucharistic culture. How do you mm -hmm. develop the culture that makes possible worship? I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Tim O'Malley about the Eucharistic revival. You know, Tim mentioned who he works for and with, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And if you didn't know this, I'm a huge fan of the McGrath Institute. They're doing amazing work and they're proudly offering a brand new series with Ave Maria Press called the Engaging Catholicism Book Series, helping you and I discover the beauty and truth of the Catholic faith through exploration of the church's most important, but sometimes kind of hard to grasp, doctrines. So this series, the Engaging Catholicism series, it's perfect for a new Catholic, for clergy and church leaders, everyone in between, the, the person who goes to Mass every Sunday, the person who hasn't been to Mass in a really long time, the newly confirmed young adult, uh, the person who's coming back to their church because they're trying to get their child baptized, everybody who's seeking an understanding, including the person who thinks they might know it all. The series expands the Institute's mission to connect the Catholic intellectual life at Notre Dame to the pastoral life of the church. For more information, head on over to mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. The link is down in the show notes. You'll find a whole lot more there. Dr. Tim O'Malley wrote the most recent book of the Engaging Catholicism series. We have the link down in the show notes as well. So we hope you grab a copy of the book and we hope you sit back and enjoy the rest of this conversation with Dr. Tim O'Malley. We did a Ash Wednesday, we call it a saint party. We had Meg Hunter Kilmer in town. She was speaking at some of our schools. She was staying with us. So we invited like 15 families over for veggie soup and cheese pizza and Meg told saint stories and, you know, it was the simplest thing. It cost like maybe a hundred bucks for all of the stuff it took to have the people over. And then people bought her book, of course, afterwards. But there was this undercurrent of why aren't we doing this more frequently as Catholic families, like getting together to celebrate a feast day or getting together to have conversations about like, how are we, how are we raising our kids in the faith beyond just sending them to Catholic school or CCD? And it was the simplest thing. And I'm happy to admit that it's been two months and we haven't done anything since because life gets busy. But obviously we felt the need to do it then and we see the need to do it and just need to make that a priority. I want to go back to a phrase you used at the start of this that some people might not remember or might not have heard, or they've heard it from a couple of our guests prior to this, but you mentioned the Eucharistic revival, which is this loaded phrase that's taken, it's, it's this project, it's this moment, it's this big event that's going to be happening in a couple of years. Can you tell us what the Eucharistic revival yeah. is? And maybe even more importantly, why it matters and why we all need to care about it? Yeah, so the Eucharistic revival is, of course, partially arising from a sense that Catholics have a decreasing Eucharistic faith, a sense that they don't necessarily know or understand the doctrine of real presence. To take a step back, they're not actually going to Mass. We see that those numbers, although, you know, after COVID, actually, Mass numbers ticked up ever so subtly, like 0.1% or 1% or so, which is... <laughs> Uh, relative to actually mainline Protestants is actually yeah. rather a big growth. Uh, there was decline almost throughout all of Christianity during the pandemic, but uh, Catholics had a slight uptick, and I, I do mean slight. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think in some ways these are all things to me. I suspect, and, and here I speak, I'm a member of the executive team, yeah, and I, I, I certainly am involved in every dimension of the, the revival, but I'll, I'll speak more about why it matters to me, which is, as I've said, we have 
infinite polarization and infighting within the church. And on Holy Thursday, while feet are being washed, or before feet are being washed, you know, we are to sing this hymn where what's revealed is the deepest Eucharistic identity of the church, a communion of love, of those who bend down in love. My favorite line from the Gospel of John is he loved his own and he loved them until the very end. And at the heart of the church is love. And love's not some sort of, you know, I think there's a certain generation that when they hear the word love, think that you're talking about like doing arts and crafts in sort of catechetical settings. Love costs. Love is sacrifice. Love is gift. And upon the cross, that's what was revealed. And upon the cross and in the Eucharistic life of the church, that's what's given. Love. And we must learn to love one another as he first loved us, right? That's why the church reads in a particular kind of way the Last Supper discourses of John, basically chapters 13 through 17 during the season of Easter. The church is to be formed into a communion of total self-giving love. And the Eucharistic revival is an occasion for us to commonly discern if we are that communion, right? Mm -hmm. Is your parish, in fact, subject to the demons of racism, of injustice? Are you, as a parish, sloppy in the way that you reverence the Blessed Sacrament? Do you understand the relationship between the parish and the neighborhood, right? Parishes are not, you as a resident of Louisiana know best of all, parishes are not buildings, but they're geographic spaces by which that area of the world will be transformed into a space of communion. Hmm. Do we promote Eucharistic solidarity with the hungry and the thirsty, right? Benedict, Pope Benedict once said that a Eucharist that does not result in the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. And if we don't build, so, so a Eucharistic revival is this, it's a call for the church to be who the church is, a communion of love. And if the church is not that, and it starts at a parish level, not abstract, right? It starts at your parish level in the concrete flesh and blood people that you join together to worship the living God. If you are not that, then do not expect the church to become that. Don't expect your bishops to, to sort of find themselves reformed. Don't expect a renewal of ecclesial life. Otherwise, it will be bureaucratic, right? Because the church, if it reforms itself consistent to American life, will be a bureaucratic reform. It has to be a spiritual Eucharistic reform before anything else. As you were talking, I was struck by a conversation I had with my mom just yesterday. So my folks just recently purchased a camp. It's Louisiana speak for cottage or lake house. About 45 minutes away in our diocese still. So they are now going to Sunday mass at a little tiny parish in Lake Arthur, Louisiana. And my mom was telling me that, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's eight o'clock Sunday morning mass. There's an eight and a 1030. So they went to eight and then they went to market basket afterwards. And she joked, she was like half the parish was in the market basket picking up their Sunday lunch stuff. And we got to visiting with people and they were asking, you know, are you guys moving out here? Is this just like a weekend getaway kind of thing? Like they wanted to know what is your investment level going to be in the community? And mom said, I told them, I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to sign up for envelopes. Like I'm happy to tithe in the same way here that we do at our home parish where we go to daily mass, because this is going to become basically our weekend community. She just kind of casually said offhanded. She was like, I didn't realize how close all these people were. And it's like, yeah, it's a small town. It's a small country town in Louisiana. 
life kind of happens in and through and from the parish where you go from mass to the grocery store to the boat launches, like everybody's connected. And maybe that's just a unique small town thing. But I feel like there's this hunger across the country for that to be part of how we worship, that I do see the people that I'm sitting next to on Sunday, that we do have conversations more than just like what's happening at the parish bazaar. And there's this investment in one another's lives because we've all invested together in this recognition that Christ is changing us. I guess my concern is that people don't see the need for that. And that's why the Eucharistic revival exists because people might be hungering for it, but maybe at the same time don't want to work for it. So here's an opportunity to really talk about how we can do that and why we need to do that. As part of the executive committee, this is your life. This is the work that you do, the life that you live. What's your hope? The Eucharistic revival is done in three, five years. What do we want to have happened in the country? Yeah, I hope that we have reclaimed, remembered what it means to say that we are the Catholic Church in the United States. We are not a political party. We are not a series of ideological lenses. We are the communion of the living God expressed in very human, fragile way, I should say, but a communion of the living God in time and space. And that means that in some sense, we have to become you know, as St. Augustine notes in one of his favorite sermons that is very, very popular and sometimes overquoted, Sermon 272, become what you receive, receive what you are. And that means become Christ's body, become what you receive. And I suspect that that's what the church needs, right? And if you look, right, we're fragmented on left versus right. We fight with each other more than anything, at least within a number of spaces that are public, right? So whether you're talking about you know, bishops meetings or Twitter, there is a sense of hostility in parishes. We segregate from one another. Right. So this is where the proper right Catholics go. We create phrases like Catholic in name only, where we identify who's in and who's out, acting as if we're the judge of heaven and earth. And I think what we need, uh, my hope is that we stop doing all those things and that Mm -hmm. We remember now, you know, sin will continue. So we won't stop doing all those things, but that (laughs) at least fundamentally at an institutional level of the church, we understand when we use the word church, we're not talking about some abstract space at the Vatican or our diocesan chancery. We're talking about a communion of love expressed Mm -hmm. in cultures and that that culture builds up the total body and makes the church who she is. And from that, we receive the Eucharist to become ever more what we are to to be. And so, you know, practically, I hope people spend time for the Blessed Sacrament and think about this. I hope that they participate in Eucharistic processions. I hope that we think about the Eucharist as the life of the church. I hope we reform chanceries so that they're Eucharistic spaces instead of bureaucratic spaces. I hope we think about it relative to our hiring practices, what we pay, and Do we follow Catholic social doctrine? Do we live solidarity within our schools and our parishes? Those are some of the practical implications of this, but it means we'll have to take this revival seriously instead of like, okay, this is another program. It's another year, Mm -hmm. three years in this case, if the church is focusing on the Eucharist and then we'll call it a day. Yeah. Practically what is happening? Like there's the big event in Indy and on the local level, like if I don't, I don't go to Indianapolis for this conference, it's not a conference, but, but whatever it will end up being, 
Like what what are what are people going to see happening in you know at thirty nine thirty nine Lake Street where I go to church every Sunday? Yeah, so there's a multi step process. So it launches this year at Corpus Christi, and there will be a number of diocesan processions to launch it. Um, followed that period of the launch, then is what's called the diocesan year. So it's working with diocesan teams to to do some of this work. Right? How is mass being celebrated in the diocese? What can we do better? How do we work with priests? to think a little bit more deeply about their own Eucharistic, the way that they celebrate the Eucharist, their own spirituality around the mm-hmm. Eucharist. Concurrently then, there's the, they're gonna start identifying what they're calling Eucharistic missionaries. And Eucharistic missionaries would be every one of us who dedicates some portion of our life to attend mass, to spend time before the blessed sacrament. And in essence, to start living more seriously this Eucharistic way of life. There will be resources created for this in courses, my own institute, the McGrath Institute is developing a course with Bishop Daniel Flores out of Brownsville that will be in English and in Spanish so that folks can be formed as Eucharistic missionaries to understand what's going on. And then like the heart of it is going, you know, during this year will also be travel to spaces both at the periphery and, you know, at the center, right? So the diocesans will do things, but also spaces, you know, where there has been racial injustice in the United States, how will we experience the healing of Christ's presence in the Eucharist and thus a conversion of ourselves? What about the border, right? How will we bring the Eucharist to the literal border where often migrants are, are very poorly treated and treated by us? And so how do we create these Eucharistic spaces? So there will be this and then the event, and then the hope is that after the event, a, a sort of continual process of formation will occur. So at least this is some of the highlights of it. It's a intentional space of formation around the Blessed Sacrament over the next three years. That's a great phrase. I love that. It does change you. I mean, I, I should know. I went to a Catholic college where I went to daily mass because of the positive peer pressure of doing so and would frequent the Blessed Sacrament. And then life gets busy and, and things begin to fill your to-do list. And so for Lent this year, our parish, we called it uh, Christ on the Boulevard because our parish is on uh, Enterprise Boulevard in town. And you could, you know, it was 24 hour adoration from Ash Wednesday to Holy Thursday. And they, we had a thank you dinner for all the folks who signed up at like a local event space and walking in, seeing the number of people who had committed to these holy hours and were, you know, obviously getting a free meal out of it and getting to kind of share with one another. And there was this moment of, we, Father called it open mic, where people could just come up and for a brief moment talk about how doing this holy hour was beneficial for them, like what they learned and why they loved it. And essentially, Father was getting people to commit to doing it again because he'd like to have 24-hour adoration all the time, not just in the season of Lent. And there was this this one older woman who walked up and she actually had the hour before mine. So we would we would pass each other in the hall, essentially. An older lady, I I do not know her name. And I hate that I don't know her name because we we had matching holy hours, like right next to each other. And she talked about how her whole life she's wanted to do this. She never really thought she had the time. So she just chose seven o'clock on a Tuesday before she had to go to work. And first of all, I had no idea she still worked. And then it made sense. She was in scrubs. So she clearly works like in a hospital or a nursing home or something. But then second of all, that she just finally at this phase of her life decided I'm going to do it. And there's no reason not to. And it was so encouraging. I mean, I was somebody who also decided the same thing, but I was more encouraged to hear her version of the events rather than just know my own experience, because I feel like that's a lot of us. We feel that urge. We feel that tug. We, we hear what you're saying and are like, yeah, that's what I want out of life. That's what I want out of the Eucharist. That's what I want out of the liturgy. 
and yet never make the effort to do so and to make it a reality. And I feel like the Eucharistic revival, just from my very far away from it perspective, just talked about it on podcasts and the radio, is that that project is good and that that hope, a lot of the people that are involved seem to have a hope very similar. So I'm grateful to hear that. And I, I think it's working. I hope it continues to work. Yeah, I mean, um, it will work when we commit ourselves to this renewal, right? I mean, yeah. Christian existence is, Christian life, Catholic life is, a constant invitation to conversion, to gratitude. I was just reading Deuteronomy 8 this morning, and I heard Israel being reminded of what God was promising them, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were going to get copper directly from rocks. And I mean, <laughs> it was so direct, these sort of promises. But it noted, like, we grow forgetful of this fact, right? We grow forgetful, they said, you will forget. And you will forget the gratitude. You will forget your years in the desert, which I, where I fed you with manna and I rescued you from slavery and you will forget. And that, that, what I, I found very apt about it, of course, is, you know, indeed, like that is the problem of Christian life. What have we been given? Total communion with the word made flesh. We are baptized into Christ, our flesh and blood lives united with the God man, uh, forever changing who we are. We're nourished with the body and blood of Christ. But as we do things, gratitude grows cold. And to renew gratitude is, of course, the heart of life. Because when you renew gratitude, you're grateful to God and you're grateful anew for your neighbor. You can recommit yourself to, to caritas or charity of, of love. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the heart of it. It's gratitude. I suppose that's the meaning of life. Can you say thank you to God for what you have received? And can you then live the consequences of that gratitude in the rest of your life. Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Yes. Make that joke once a year on Thanksgiving day. And yet I feel like we forget it on the regular. Dr. O'Malley, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can we follow you and grab a copy of your brand new book? I have the, I have the press release copy sitting in my, my house, but where can folks grab it when it's available? Yeah. So Ave Maria has it. I think it's available now. We'll have resources on uh, our own Center for Liturgy websites that we're going to design around the book. Um, but Ave Maria Press, you can, or you can just, if you want to literally follow me, I'm probably going on a long walk. And if so, it's down <laughs> 23 in South Bend. Uh, so if you want to literally follow me, that's how you can follow me. Um, I mostly walk. So I to- did I, I might've texted you. I might've forgot to text you. Somebody posted a picture of you on their Instagram stories walking with a book and they're like, there goes my theology professor. Oh, <laughs> I did not know second, that. I was that like, oh, that's my friend. Like, and that I knew immediately who it was. Like it was a far off shot, but I immediately knew it was you. Sweater yeah, I mean, and book. Talk with, I walked seven miles while reading. So this is my <laughs> commitment to health and intellectual health. So, yeah, but it's dangerous. Yeah. And so maybe my next book is how to walk and read. Yeah. A maybe a treadmill. Like you can be stationary. Treadmills are but precarious. Yet- they're much more precarious in fact, because <laughs> They're, they're moving at a consistent pace. It's true. I get stuck in the Peloton all the time. Like, there's a frequent, Tommy has to help me out of the bike in order to not how, hurt myself. Yeah, it's how many of us will pass, I think. I think so. I mean, it yeah, a, it's, it, it's sorry, in TV. Peloton. So, sorry, Peloton. <laughs> yeah, we're not. not we're not. you have to worry about. Not sponsored. The machine itself is killing you, so. It's true. Yeah, my feet get stuck. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time. All right. Thanks, Katie. Be well. One of the things that I I think is so beautiful about chatting with really, really smart people 
is that you can tell their desire for study, their desire for teaching. Dr. Dr. O'Malley is an incredible professor. And, and so, so not long after our interview was done, I posted a photo of the notebook that I keep when I'm taking interviews. I, I jot notes. And, and so I, I, I took a snapshot of, of the notebook page where I, I had all of his thoughts kind of jotted out so that I you know, could make sure I was staying on top of what we were discussing and if I had follow-up questions. And I, I posted it on my personal Facebook page and, and a mutual friend of, of Dr. Tim O'Malley's and mine, Ashley, who works for Hallow, said, oh my gosh, I wish I still had the notebooks from his class. It was always so so fun to listen to him. He was such a good professor. And Tim commented back, you guys are too kind. I'm, I'm not nearly as engaging as you think I am. But as you just heard, he certainly is. And a lot of the insights that he offers us, while very theologically high-minded, are also incredibly practical. And, and not only lay out what the Eucharistic revival is, but give us an idea of, of the goal and the hope and, and what this can mean for you and I in our faith life. All of this is part of our Ave Explorer series on the Mass. We have some incredible content coming your way. Podcasts, videos, conversations on Instagram Live, incredible articles. Everything is available over at AveMariaPress.com, including a place where you can submit your questions about the Mass that are going to be answered live on Instagram with Father Blake Britton. So we hope you send us your questions so we can have a great conversation with him in a few weeks on Instagram. If you click down on the show notes, you'll find a link straight to our series filled with resources just for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, maybe even give it a rating and review if you'd like to share with other people all the great things that you're learning. We're so excited that you were with us this week. Don't forget to tune back in next week. We've got more incredible conversations coming, talking about distractions in the mass, talking about ways that we're called to focus in the mass, talking about perhaps even sometimes how we can better engage in preparing for, say, the homily, which we're not just listening to, but we're actively participating in. So much more is coming. We hope you stick around for more of our series. Thanks so much for listening with us this week. We'll see you soon. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.